If you want access to bonus episodes, reading lists for every series of Empire, a chat community, discounts for all the books mentioned in the week's podcast, ad-free listening, and a weekly newsletter, sign up to Empire Club at www.empirepoduk.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Hello and welcome to Empire with me, Anita Arnon. And me, William Durrumpool. And today we're delighted to be joined by Susan Babier, who is Professor of the Art of Iran and Islam at the Courtauld Institute, which is the author of a book that is beautiful and perfect for us to talk about all things beautiful and perfect, Isfahan and its palaces, statecraft, Shiism and the architecture of conviviality in early modern Iran. Thank you so much for being with us. And you are an antidote because we've spent quite a few weeks on this podcast talking about gouging and a pillaging and a, and a and stripping a of flesh and, <laughs> yeah, you know, sort of all sorts of really grim things. Pouring gold over the heads of crab princes and all sorts of stuff. Yeah. So today we're going to be talking about the beautiful, the wonderful, the magical city of Isfahan. It's located at the centre of the Iranian plateau and it was made the capital of Persia at the end of the 16th century. So, you know, you become a capital and you become fabulously wealthy. And it's the site of some of the most stunning architecture anywhere in the world ever, ever, ever. But it's also the capital of pleasure, full of wonderful food, fashion, parties. Some might even call it the home of sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Uh, but before we get into all of that, and we will, uh, can we have some more context on the period that many have called the golden age of the Safavid Persians? So we're in the rule of Shah Abbas. That's right, isn't it? So tell us first of all who he was. Yes, thank you. It's always a joy to talk about Shah Abbas, whom I'm sure gouged eyes, we know he did, because of the fact that he didn't want any of his sons, for instance, to be his competitors. But nevertheless, Shah Abbas was the fifth ruler of Safavid dynasty and a real brilliant strategist, it seems, where he managed to find a way to balance the conflict that was between the Safavid and Ottoman territories on the northwestern parts of what we call today Iran, and also at the same time conflicts on the northeastern side with the Uzbeks, with the Shaybanids, and figured out how to hold one group and settle one side and then come back and finally defeat or come to a peace treaty with the Ottomans, which basically means that the greatest accomplishment from a military point of view was settling conflicts and securing borders. And appropriately enough, in that wonderful miniature of him with, is it Jahangir? And the two are hugging over the map of Asia uh, with the lamb lying down with the lion. Well, it's lamb lying down with, with the lion. Jahangir is the lion, of course. And Shohabas is seen as the lamb, subdued, as it were, from a Jahangir point of view. But the thing about it is that Shohabas' accomplishment of settling the borders, so to speak, 
and signing a treaty, a peace treaty, that of Amasia, meant that he begins to restructure governance and also plan on transfer of the capital from Asvin to Esfahan. Okay, so so just to give it a little bit of a date anchor for those people who are scratching their head going, which period of history are we talking about? We're talking so a, a man born in 1571 who comes to power in 1587. It's not an easy rise to power for him because this is a Persia in turmoil. Was he was he always an impressive man? Was it what were his strengths? Well, I mean, we understand him to have been an impressive man, but that's also largely the writings around him, both from a Persian point of view, chroniclers, pretty much all of them are writing in his court for him. So in other words, not necessarily able to say anything uh, negative or critical about the man, but also European writing, which glorifies Shah Abbas as the reformer, as the great king who is capable of bringing Iran to peace and building of Esfahan, the new capital, is a really high mark on his career. The sort of organizing of the military forces, creating an opportunity for, in fact, a restructuring of the governance too. And it's important to say that Shah Abbas did something that no one else had done, which is said, Isfahan should be my capital. And what is the significance of that decision? Why did he decide that? The decision to transfer the capital from Azvin, which was north central Iran to Esfahan was related to the wish, it seems, to really start fresh, as it were. In other words, a trade and structure of governance and connecting with routes of trade that would bring the Persian Gulf and the Caspian Sea together. In a way, this was celebratory after the signing of the peace treaty with the Ottomans. There's a certain sense of confidence here. And the move to Esfahan by the author's Persian chronicles often point to the beauty of the region, to good weather, plentiful water. Water supplies are always so important. And so the choice is the river Zayanderud and the old city of Esfahan, the Saljuk one, which was north, well north of the, the river. But when the decision is made, which is around 1590-91, that's when they start the building, the planning and building. But the capital is officially transferred in 1598. And is it a fully formed uh, idea in his head when he decides this is going to be his capital? I mean, what is it like when he has this vision for a new capital? Yeah. So I tend to think that it's not just Shah Abbas, but that there is a whole community of people, advisors. Sheikh Bahai. Yeah, exactly. Grand thinkers like Sheikh Bahai. We don't know if he was an architect, but we do know that he was a mathematician, amongst other things. So the point about it is that the decision to move generates a huge activity around planning. At first, he actually suggests restoring the old bazaars of the Saljur Esfahan, but the local nobility resisted. They don't want him to come in and mess around with their particular sort of hold on the old city and its trade. So that's when he then decides to move the capital, the new capital, outside of the old city, south of it, towards what is a Maidana Asp, usually a vast space. Maidana Asp are present outside of city walls for mustering armies, for instance. Qazvin had one of these. This is a very common practice. And so the footprint of that Maidana Asp was next to a garden, an old garden. That's Naqsha Jahan Gardens. And so they designed this whole thing with these two pivotal points. One is the Maidan, which the Maidana Asp becomes a major urban center, commercial, religious, political. And then they build this promenade, Chaharbagh. The two pieces really create a new city. 
out of this space. And then they have to bring people into it. You have to populate it. Shah Abbas had a reign of 42 years. How, how long did it take him to, you know, build a city? Did he live to, you know, did he see it and enjoy it in his own lifetime? He did because he died in 1629. So, I mean, the first 10 years are the years of beginning to construct the city, planning and so forth. But he sees it to full fruition. The parts that he in his reign, they set up, he sees it. So the Maidan is completed, the mosque is completed, the mosque is completed only with some tile work and the door and so forth after he dies during the time of his successor. The promenade is completed, it goes all the way over a magnificent bridge, Siosepol, about which Byron actually writes and has a gorgeous photograph. And then it goes down south towards the foot of the mountains, where there is a huge suburban garden built for Shah Abbas and company. And we should say that arriving in Isfahan from the interior, it's suddenly greener, there's suddenly flowers, there's water everywhere. It's feeling like sort of coming up from air, the oppression of the desert is lifted and suddenly you are in a, in a vision of paradise. Yeah, and it is really designed as a green city. This we see it as it was designed and laid out. It really feels and looks like a green city, which is extraordinary. That's what everybody writes about in the 17th century. Okay. One of the main things that he did, as far as I understand it, I mean, sort of, you know, to build Isfahan to the standard that he did is you need cash. Cold, hard cash, honey. And the way that comes in, I mean, is he does a very clever thing with the Strait of Hormuz, which is, you know, geographically speaking, it is the gateway from Persia to the rest of the world. But it was under the boot of the Portuguese for some time. And he changes that, doesn't he? And that, that brings in a lot of wealth. And he brings in the Brits. He brings in the East India Company. Yeah. And, and uh, basically opening the door to commerce and creating opportunities for wide range of commercial links. And most important amongst those, perhaps, is the silk trade. The production rises and the trade is essentially monopolized. And the silk becomes the purview for trade purposes of the Armenian community in Esfahan, which Shah Abbas transports forcibly from old Jolfa to Esfahan building or allowing them to build a new Jolfa. Where they remain to this day and you can go and see their beautiful cathedral and lovely museum. And yeah, so he's, I mean, he's sort of, you know, trade brings wealth, but also he's able, because if you take control of the Strait of Hormuz, and all these places, again, are in our news headlines, because the you know, strategic importance of those, you know, geography doesn't change, politics may change, but the Strait is the Strait. He is able to charge taxes and, you know, sort of import duties and export duties. That must bring in quite a wadge of money as well. Yeah, but can I just adjust that not only Strait of Hormuz is taken back from the Portuguese, creating an opportunity for entering into the network of maritime trade, but also placing Esfahan in the kind of a route that is a north-south route, smack in the middle of what is the Safavid territories. And this north-south is important because it connects the center to the northern routes through the Volga River. And that's really important because of the Ottomans. Ottomans had blocked the trade routes through their territories. So Shah Abbas manages to open new trade routes, and that's really crucial. And this is how the East India Company and the Levant Company first arrived, don't they, in Persia, trading south from, from Muscovy, as it then is. Yes, and that's really crucial. In other words, creating links with the Tsarist Russia, creating links as far away as with Britain, for instance, opening opportunities for the East India Company representatives to come in. But never do we forget the role of the Armenian community, a merchant community whose linguistic skills were enormous, who had a network, trade network, that was really precursor to the multinationals of today. You know, from India to Britain, they connected everybody. I'm sitting 
talking to you from Delhi. And in the suburbs here, we have the earliest church in Delhi, which is an Armenian church in the far north or Armenian burial shrine. And this is set up along with similar churches and community centers in Agra, in Madras, and in Calcutta at this time, uh, with this very strong Armenian network heading back to Julfa and Isfahan. And it's one of the great forgotten merchant networks. We remember the East India Company. We forget the incredibly powerful Armenian merchant communities that had these links right across the Levant. There's networks of India coming to Iran, the new Jolfa essentially, and also connect to, for instance, you said Levant. Aleppo is an important place for this Armenian community, merchant community that connects to Iran. And the Levant Company, which also has a big factory there. And yes, and then move further to Marseille, for instance. So it's a hugely important network. I mean, just to clarify, Isfahan did exist before Shah Abbas dreamt it in his own you know, way. Because it, it, we're saying you know, there was a settlement here maybe as old as 2000 BC. So I mean, there, there was always something here, wasn't there? Yes. And then there's the gorgeous, um, enormous Seljuk Mosque, which is one of the still to this day, despite all the wonderful additions put by Shah Abbas, the Seljuk Jama Masjid is one of the great buildings of, uh, of Isfahan and Iran. Yes, definitely. And Isfahan really over centuries is the city that emerges out of what was the dominant settlement known as Yehudiya. So it was a Jewish settlement. It's really important to remember these histories that are so crucial to the identity of the city. So the Yehudiya and Jay and Shahristan come together, becomes Esfahan. So what you said about the Jame Masjid, the, the great mosque of Esfahan, is actually right in that area of Yehudiya, the Jewish quarter of Esfahan, is in that neighborhood. Because when you go to Esfahan today, you see the very strong Armenian presence, but of course you no longer see the Jewish presence, which which has now been extinguished within our own lifetime. Yes, as a local kid told me, the so-called masjid Juhuda, the Jewish mosque, you can still see that, you know? And that by which you mean the synagogue? It's the synagogue, exactly. So, I mean, most people have not been lucky enough to go to Isfahan. But, I mean, something I was reading, and you tell me, Susan, if this makes sense, but 400 years ago, the sort of time period that we're talking about, we're talking about Isfahan, a city larger than London, more cosmopolitan than Paris. Richer than both. Filled with architecture the world had never seen before. That's correct, isn't it? Correct, yes. And it was a wondrous place, as Europeans who come in all notice for instance, all of them talk about how rich it is, how full of goods from everywhere it is. They talk about the Maidan, the public square of Esfahan, as larger than anything they have seen. They note the promenade, the Chahar Bagh, where you can go and stroll up and down this tree-lined street. They notice the shops and the cafes and the cosmopolitan nature of Esfahan in the 17th century, which begins to really get thicker and more busy, is really a noted distinction of the city at this time. Now, does Shah Abbas do what other rulers have done in the past, which is force artisans and, and architects to come and build his city? Or do, are they just attracted by the wealth that he is attracting because he's changed the balance of power here. Yeah, it's interesting because we know, for instance, Timur got everybody from everywhere he conquered to come to Samarkand. He forced them. And he also looted, you know, marble from Delhi and brought them over. So Esfahan is not built like that. In a sense, it is built by people who are attracted to it because it becomes the major building site, actually. And it's not by force, but rather by very nature of the large-scale planning and building. And I mean large-scale. We are talking about massive constructions 
planned through a master plan. That that's my firm understanding that it's master planned. It feels very much like a planned city when you go to the main Maidan. It's like Trafalgar Square. It's it's not something that's happened by accident. It's perfectly aligned. So, what is the main Maidan? I mean, for the again, you are our lonely planet guides here, both of you. So, I mean, I haven't been to the Maidan. What does it look like? What does it feel like? How big is it? So, Maidan is called the image of the world, Naqsha Jahan. It's that ambitious, you know. It already self-confidently talks about how worldly it is. So the Maidan was the one of the two centerpieces, the pivots of the new urban development. It's a vast, vast open space, actually, which was then given peripheral walls, these peripheral segments where arcades of shops, essentially. And the city... The new city was entered through the old marketplace, the bazaars of the old city of Esfahan, which was the Saljuk city. Which are magnificent in themselves, these great vaulted bazaars. So you would walk from the old city through these vaulted bazaars and enter the Maidan through this royal entrance to the marketplace And then the Maidan would unfold before your eyes, this vast, long rectangle with a massive congregational mosque at the south end of it, the palace entrance on the west side of it, and another, a kind of a smaller chapel mosque, private royal mosque. I've only read accounts of this, but but also a really sort of complicated watering system where, you know, these gr- large, vast basins of onyx or marble are filling with water all through the day to cool the Medan down and they're filled with the heads of roses. So the whole place is perfumed. I mean, it sounds it sounds like a thing of, of, of you know, sort of fantasy and imagination. Yes, it is fantasy in the sense that it is so vast, the Medan, that unless you stand by that rose, you cannot smell it. But (laughs) but it is true that it was extremely well laid out. It was, by the way, the proper size for polo. And polo was played in the Maidan. In the miniatures, you see that. You can see that, exactly. But it was also watched by the Shah and his guests from the balcony, the porch that was at the entrance of the palace, the Aligapu Palace. That where the Maidan was the place for daily markets, you could have, for instance, let's say Saturday market for selling textiles or food of some kind in the Maidan. You could have festivities, fireworks, processionals. There is a, a story about when some guests came, foreigners, their gifts were paraded along the sides of the Maidan, taken from in front of the great new congregational mosque, and then brought to the palace. In other words, sort of cleanse them, making it sound like these are not gifts from other kings, but from God, in fact. There's something really ceremonial about the space of the Maidan and its possibilities. I mean, you've mentioned both of you, the Great Mosque, a few times, but we don't have, I don't have a picture of it in my head yet. I'll I'll read something that your great hero, Robert Byron, wrote about, the the Great Mosque. Robert Byron loved the Sheikh Lutfullah Mosque. It's a really beautiful passage, just forgive me. He says, peering up towards the apex, 65 feet above the pavement, I have this pleasant feeling of unexpected vertigo. Each element, like the muscles of a trained athlete, performs its function with winged precision, he wrote. I love Byron. That's a wonderful description. Uh, So he's writing not about the great sort of public mosque, but about that small mosque of Sheikh Lutfullah, which is a private mosque. It was a royal private mosque directly across from Aligapu Palace Gateway. But what it is, it's like a jewel box and no one writes as beautifully about it as Byron does. It's like, I mean, to Isfahan, it's really the sort of Sistine Chapel almost, one of the very great architectural wonders of the world anywhere in any civilization ever. It's just... Can anyone go and visit this private mosque? Yes, of course. You you can go and see it for yourself. And what about the Great Mosque then? I mean, what was that like? So this one was a huge mosque that had an entranceway opening onto the Maidan with its minarets rising, these 
beautiful thin minarets rising. It looks like it is embracing you, inviting you into the mosque, all covered in these tiles, intricate tiles. And then once you entered it, you would turn around through a little hallway and enter a huge courtyard with these avons. It has four avons. This is an Iranian type of mosque. And then you would enter the domed chamber in front of the mihrab, which is the most sort of sanctified part of the mosque. The distinction of this mosque is the way it stacks up. It looks like when you stand at the other end of the maidan, you can kind of see the first pishtar, the entrance, then the second one, which is in front of the great dome, which rises even higher. And you have this feeling that you're turning on a skewed axis to turn towards Mecca. So it's an axis that is different from the axis of everyday life in the Maidan. The axis of the mosque is towards Mecca, and it really spiritually changes the way you feel or look or experience the space. But the contrast between these two mosques, on one hand, the open, big public mosque at the end, and this small, intimate Sheikh Lutfullah mosque, which is covered, and the dome is like a peacock's tail with these eyes of the peacock descending down to the sides. You lie there, you, you sit inside this perfect space, and you cannot move for an hour because you're just so hypnotized by the beauty of it. It is really beautiful on that level. But the private mosque was not then for people to go and do the Friday prayer in. That was really an iconic presence of the royal household's devotion, if you will, to the Shiite teachings. And Sheikh Lutfullah, who was the father-in-law of Shah Abbas, was amongst the most important of the ulama, the learned, the religious learned, who helped establish the principles of Shiism in Iran of Safavid period. One question before we leave the architecture, Suzanne, the role of color, because the thing that makes this stand out from everything else in, in earlier architecture, that like the Seljuk Mosque and so on, is this astonishing rainbow colors of, of the tile work of this period. Yeah, and it's everywhere. It's this kind of all over. There are like miles of tiles in different colors. There's nothing else like it anywhere else in the world, the tile work of Islam. Not that I can think of. And the profile of the domes are very sort of gentle rise or gentle drop, depending on what you want to call it. These thin minarets, which are called goldaste, they are like flower bunches, you know. Yeah. It's very pleasant to look at. And the light in Esfahan is extraordinary. And the Maidan gets these gorgeous reflections of light at different times of the day off of these tile works in ways that really make the Maidan a sensational place from a you know sensory point of view. Well, don't worry, we have more extraordinary sensations to come. We'll take a break now, but join us after the break where we explore Isfahan, this jewel of a city, a little bit more. Life is a highway. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, 
Was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? <laughs> well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back. So just before the break, we were being taken by it's just an exceptional tour guide, really. Suzanne Babier is with us still. You know, before we get into some of the promenades, and again, you're doing a lovely job of visualizing this for us. Abbas himself, I mean, I, I heard he was sort of quite personally involved in some of the beautification of his new capital. I mean, there's a story. Is it true that he holds a candle for the artist Reza Abbasi, who's sketching something, and it's him, Abbas, Shah Abbas, the king himself, that's who's holding the candle so he can see what he's doing. Is that right? Yes, there is a note on that one that Shah Abbas, I mean, Reza Abbasi gets his name, his Abbasi part is because he's a court artist and he gets that name from Shah Abbas, actually. Whether this is apocryphal or not is beside the point. But what it says is that the Shah is very engaged in very many aspects, including the arts. The Europeans talk about him walking around the bazaar, coming out of the palace, that he actually has said something to the effect that what's the point of being a king if you cannot go into the city and be with people, for instance. So it's a, there, there are a lot of these stories about him coming out, being present, hosting events. And I... I would really love to think that while he may not be always walking around the city, but the joy of what this new city is representing. I mean, reveling in the beautiful. So there's a lovely, another lovely story. And, and we'd love to get into the culture and the thinking of the time as well. But there's another lovely story about, you know, just this is his idea of kingship. And we've had so many shahs before in this series who don't engage with their people. You know, they're just cloistered up there with their harems. They don't really, they don't not that bothered or interested or just completely separated from. But there's a lovely story about him just sort of walking through the markets and, you know, just picking pairs of shoes that he likes and just taking them off shelves from the bazaar saying, I'll have that and I'll have that. And, I'll, you know, just reveling in this enormous sweet shop that he's created for himself. Yeah, exactly. And I think there's something to be said here about the fact that he is a king in a particular structure. This has to do with 12er Shiism, with MME Shiism. These are there as kings on behalf of, if you will, the imams, especially the 12th imam that she is believed is in occultation. I don't understand what that means. Explain that. Sorry, the, the 12th imam who is in occultation, what does that mean? So the she is who believe in the succession of the 12 descendants after Ali, the son-in-law of the prophet, the sort of the first of the she's, they believe that the 12th imam, it's a Mahdi, he's a promised one. He goes into occultation and she's, 12 she's are still awaiting his return. The return of the Mahdi, got it. Exactly. Got it, got it. It's the got Messiah it. idea, right? So the Safavid Shahs 
the articulation of why are they legitimate rulers because the Ottomans considered them because they weren't Sunnis, heretics. They were not legitimate kings. So the articulation of legitimacy has a great deal of different facets to it. And kingship in this context is based on ancient Iranian kingship, on Shi'i ideas on behalf of the imam, and indeed they come out being more accessible. That's the point. He comes out because they have to be accessible. Susan, uh, Anita mentioned harems a minute ago. One thing we haven't said, which I think is terribly important, is that many of the builders of Isfahan are women. And you have one of the great courtesans, and you also have the grandmother, Dilaram Khanum, uh, who's one of the great patrons of this new astonishing city. Talk about the women of Isfahan. Yeah, um, I think the women, we know about the women of the royal household primarily. So the grandmothers, for instance, there are two two structures in the newly developed royal bazaar complex, which are patronized by two grandmothers from the royal court, Shah Abbas's grandmother. Who are very powerful. They are very powerful. They are very important and obviously have access to wealth. But the city, the massive planning and construction of the city is largely due to the work of what is called the Qulaman. These are the, the elite slaves of the household, of the Safavid household. They are of the Christian background. As children, they are brought into the royal household. They grow up, actually, with the, with the Shah. For instance, one of them, Allah Verdi Khan, is a major general. He's the builder of that amazing bridge, Allah Verdi Khan bridge, that crosses the Zoyanderud. Is that the one where the, the singers today sit underneath the vaults and you can hear all the... Well, that's the Khaju bridge, probably. But these are entertainment places. People went to the bridges to watch fireworks and boating in the in the water because the two bridges, they had sluices. You could close them up like dams and have a little lake in the middle. So the point is that there is a large number of different people involved in building this massive new city. I mean, you've made it sound like party central. And I just want to know a little bit more about life, you know, if you're not Shah Abbas in, in Isfahan. Was it the, the wealth expressed in music and food and culture more generally? Yes. Actually, Party Central is really interesting because there was an accusation, scholarly accusation, that the Safavids were not really religious and they partied all the time and loved having these massive ziofat gatherings for food and drinking and whatnot. That is true, but it's a form of statesmanship. So in other words, if you hold a big party and feed everyone generously in the company of the Shah, that is a form of expression of what this form of kingship is about. They weren't hiding behind a curtain not ever seen. Quite the contrary, the presence is really an important part of it. But that means that people of Esfahan could see, for instance, some of these parties if they stood in the Maidan, they could see that the Shah and his company are up there having musicians and dancers and food. There's a music room, isn't there, in the Aligapu Palace? Yeah. It's just amazing. In other words, the cultural dimension is, in fact, a great sort of rich, sensory-rich environment. Susan, tell us about the mansion of the 12 Tubans while we're on Party Central. <laughs> yes, okay. That is in reference to a famous Ruspi or courtesan who would then make money based on charging visitors to the the house of disrepute, if you will. But in those days, not considered a house of disrepute at all, but the center of high culture. It was perfectly publicly accessible. We know that such places did exist around the Maidan of Esfahan. And there were cafes and taverns and perfectly good for the purposes of 
entertainment across social classes in Esfahan. And 12 tumans was the initial entry fee for your first visit. That was the (laughs) initial entry fee. But, you know, the presence of the courtesans in the court is documented. We know that, for instance, in these big receptions, there would be dancers, and these are courtesans, musicians, many of them women as well. So it's a, it's very much an integrated sort of social setting. And we see pictures of them, of course, in the wonderful um, wall paintings of the Chahasutun and so on. Exactly. What is the Chahasutun? Chahasutun meaning for 40 columns is the name of a palace, the largest formal palace in Esfahan. Gorgeous place. Where the receptions of 400, 500 people who would be entertained and fed and just gather in this magnificent room. See, you've said fed again, and it may be because we're doing this at Round about lunchtime, but what was what did feed mean? I mean, what were the what was what was the kind of cuisine like in Isfahan? To this day, Isfahan is one of the great foodie capitals of the world, and I'm sure in Shah Abbas's day it was even more so. Yes. So the the idea of food sharing, food is what drives all these parties in a way. So food, from what we gather. When everyone was seated and there was a protocol of seating, so the closest to the Shah were the favored ones, and then you would seat them. So the whole building actually has a structure. And we're talking about his palace. Yes, this palace of the Chehil Sutun, for instance, Uh has a talar, a porch, a wooden pillared hall, which has three segments to it. And it looks towards the gardens and this magnificent pool. And people were seated according to their rank and closeness and distance with relation to the Shah. And then music was played and then food would come. So the food would come through courses. Already we are talking about courses of food. I'm actually salivating at the thought of this. <laughs> well, I, I'm not because I want to know what's on the platters. What kind of courses of food? What, what do we got on the menu? So Europeans complain that these people eat their dessert first. And it's to this day, we still eat our dessert first. So they would bring sweet stuff and fruits first. Then little containers would be removed. New souffre would be placed, you know, a spread for the food to be brought. And then the next course would come and a next course. What is so interesting about this is that you would have stews and kebabs. And kebabs are not so big because this is not a nomadic cultural thing. You're making me feel sad that kebabs were not big, but carry on. Okay, I'll, I'll do a stew. There are many other pleasures. The yeah. stews, <laughs> the stews of Isfahan. Oh. So, all right, don't, don't, don't just say stews. I mean, what's in it? What's so special about a stew? <laughs> so before I go to what's special about stew, the most special thing, the thing that ended the feast was rice. Rice dishes, Persian rice, of all kinds of recipes, all of which these new recipes for rice were written by two courtly chefs, if you will. One of them was a court or a princely household chef, whom we know by name actually because they they write these books. That one was called Muhammad Aliyebovajibardodi, and he writes a cookbook that has all these new recipes for rices. And then Shah Abbas's chef, whose name is Nurullah, he writes another cookery treatise. And there too, you see an assembly of new rice dishes. And we are talking about rice with all kinds of fruits and nuts and herbs and meats. Fruits is the particular thing, isn't it? That's what makes the, the Persian rice stand out. This is Persian rice. Fruits and nuts. That makes a Persian rice. In India, Kashmiri cooking is an echo of this. Yes, exactly. Or what they call the North Indian cooking, the Mughal courtly cookery is really also reflecting some of these. Though biryani has a different meaning in Isfahan, doesn't it? It's more like a sort of meat sandwich. Or yeah. I'm, so, I'm, so, I'm, I'm still not letting you off the hook without telling me about the stews. <laughs> I feel I feel like I've I feel like I've skipped the main course here, Suzanne. What 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 was in it? What what's a what's a Isfahan stew all about? Well, this is not Isfahan stew so much as 
just Persian stews, right? So you would have stews with, say, meat and vegetables or the kinds of stews that are very common in Persian cookery today also. And what is so interesting about these is I'm really interested in not just the food, but also how it was delivered. So we have evidence of dishes, bowls that are deeper, and those are for the stews, and then these vast platters, which are shallow, and the rice is placed in these platters like a pyramidal shape. And it wasn't for common eating out of that platter, but actually for presentation. So everyone would get smaller plate of their own, but the platters, can you imagine all these platters of rices of all colors? There are some recipes like siyah polo, black rice, or recipes that talk about how the chef should set it up so that it looks like a painting. He talks about colorful rice. And the chef has to deliver and serve it to each person because only he knows what should be going with what in the serving of the food. Do you have reference at this point to that lovely thing that I love in Persian cooking, that uh, crunchy bottom of the pan rice? No, we don't. We don't know it, actually. This must be a later because this is courtly food. You know, this is high level food. And that crunchy bottom probably was never delivered. It's still now people <laughs> deliver it. But before it is delivered, we children go to the kitchen to eat it before it comes out. <laughs> and what, what were people wearing? I mean, I was sort of keen because I, I want to live in this period of Shahbaz's um, <laughs> Isfahan. I want to know what it felt like. I mean, was fashion as intricate and ornate as the tiles and the beauty in the surrounding? Yeah. So it all goes together. And first of all, it's interesting that some European observers talk about the, the sort of diversity of textiles and tailoring of clothes and so forth. And I think maybe it is Chardin who says... This is Jean Chardin, the French traveller. The French traveller and jeweller. He was a very sort of an, op an observer with knowledge and spent a lot of time in Esfahan. The French were right in there. He and Tavernier were hanging around. Yes, exactly. And so there's a note made of how Persians spend more money on their clothing than anyone else does in this period. And I have to say, it is still the same, actually. If you go to an Iranian party, all these women are dressed to the nines like no one can possibly imagine. But the clothing, you said, they were beautiful. We can only really talk about men's clothing that survives in the examples voided velvet material, which would depict flowers and birds, or young men wearing the same kind of velvet coat. Can you imagine it's this conceit of an image within an image? And the guy, these are the dandies of Esfahan, would wear these coats and beautiful costumes and hats and walk up and down the Maidan or walk up and down the Chahar Bagh, the promenade, to go to cafes and taverns and so forth. And women would also be able to freely walk around and, you know, in beautiful clothes, or were they, was it much more, they were not seen so much in public spaces? Yeah, that's a segregated society, essentially. Women had access, for instance, to the Chahar Bagh, the promenade. There are times when the promenade is reserved for women. And even merchants, whose female members of the merchant community would bring things for the women to buy. But women, you don't see or hear that they were walking around freely. If you are of high class, you don't do that. Shardan particularly says that the nobles of Isfahan keep their women uh, very jealously. He's been yeah. already in Turkey and he'll go to Mughal India, but he thinks that the Persians are the ones who uh, restrict the movements of their women most of all and are most jealous, he says. Yeah. Shardan says they do not let anyone who calls the prayer climb high because they will see the women in their mansions that are always open to the side in their courts and gardens. 
Thus, the minarets serve only as ornaments. They do not make them make any more this day. They put in place of minarets on the platforms of the mosque, a small open room from all sides, and from there they give the public call. So they don't like the idea of mullahs spying down on the women in the gardens. Yes, although I have to say he must have known that it's so far away they would see nothing of it. But <laughs> nonetheless, he has a point. One other aspect of life in Safavid Isfahan I'd love to talk about is, is the sexual mores, this idea of beardless boys. This is still a very important part of Persian culture at this point, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And it's it's this fluidity about gender and fluidity about sexual relationships. And there is a great deal written. And, and in painting, you see this. You see this also in the, in the Chesultan Palace. There's pictures of these boys and, and Europeans too. Yes, there are, but not in not necessarily in compromising positions. Although that too, you find it, for instance, in some objects, so wine bottle, for instance, on one side of it, it has a, a good picture or a picture you can show anyone. The other side is a couple copulating. And so you have this object that you can show the side that is <laughs> naughty to your friends, close friends, and turn it around when you don't want anyone to know you have this object. That's a private porn Yeah, exactly. There is Ew. indeed, I think pornography, material of pornography do exist in all of these courtly environments. And we have paintings of that sort as well. But also that gender fluidity specially applies to men. Yes, tell us about that. I'm very interested in that. Because it, it seems to be part of Persian culture and Persian poetry over quite a period of time. Yeah, and it's, it's actually, when you think about it, Persian language does not distinguish between, with the pronouns, gender. There are sexual mores that are pretty strict. That's true. But for instance, the Safavid thinking, and I'm talking about the ulama, the learned, is that Jesus remaining celibate and all these missionaries coming in celibate, practicing celibacy is an unnatural thing. They thought of it as unnatural and that men should have women or men. Suzanne, one thing before we close, you've talked about these missionaries coming in and we've talked about Shada visiting. Tell us how cosmopolitan it was. Uh, you have people from all over. Soon after this, you have the Shirley's coming in, the East India Company representatives dressing in full Persian magnificence in all their robes and turbans. Uh, and you have pictures of, of dandies from Europe with their wide brim hats on the wall paintings of the palaces. How cosmopolitan was this city? Well, the way we understand it is that it was filled with people from everywhere and not just Europeans. There were also Indians there and there were East Asians. And in fact, this should be the way we look at Isfahan, that it's multi-religious and multicultural. It's much more of a plurality of interest and people. And so much of it has to do with open trade. And trade and commerce makes it possible for the Armenian and the Indian uh, Hindus and the Muslims of all kinds to somehow manage to get along and do business. And I think that's the cosmopolitanism is embedded in the fact that we know in the marketplace you could buy prints, for instance, and printed books from Europe, or you could buy textiles from India, you could buy spices from everywhere. You know, that sort of availability of things and of people and seeing one another and seeing different habits is really what makes the city so extraordinary. And you have brought it to life for us so beautifully. Thank you so much. That is all from us for this podcast. Goodbye from me, Anita Arnon. And goodbye from me, William Durrumpo.